The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to Tech Sequences. James Madison famously observed that, quote, a popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both, end quote. Thomas Jefferson, another of the founding fathers of the United States, echoed the sentiment when he wrote, quote, wherever the people are well-informed, they can be trusted with their own government, end quote. In other words, they both cautioned that a well-informed public is essential to a functioning democracy. Perhaps that is why freedom of the press is enshrined in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. But is the free press in danger? Well, that is the question the Hutchins Commission set out to answer. The commission concluded that it is, indeed, and that there are three reasons why. First, it found that the importance of the press to the people has greatly increased with the development of the press as an instrument of mass communication. Second, the few who are able to use the machinery of the press as an instrument of mass communication have not provided a service adequate to the needs of society. And third, those who direct the machinery of the press have engaged from time to time in practices which the society condemns and which, if continued, will inevitably undertake to regulate or control. If you have not heard of the Hutchins Commission, it is because the commission released this report in 1947. Yet their finding rings eerily true even today. In closing their report, the commission set out several principles that spell out the commitments a free and responsible press must live by. These principles were designed to enforce transparency by the press and cultivate trust by the public. And yet, trust seems to be in short supply. According to a 2022 Gallup poll, just 7% of Americans have a great deal of trust and confidence in the media, and 27% have a fair amount. Meanwhile, 28% of U.S. adults say they do not have very much confidence and 38% have none at all in newspapers, TV, and radio. Perhaps most worrying is that for the first time, the percentage of Americans with no trust at all in the media is higher than the percentage with a great trust or a fair amount combined. But so what if the trust in the press and media is at historic lows? How would that hurt democracy? Well, the best answer comes from Maria Ressa the 2021 Nobel Prize winner who said, quote, if you can make people believe lies or the facts, then you can control them, end quote. Technology is often blamed as a catalyst in the downward spiral of trust in the media. Just consider how advances in deepfake AI create compelling images, audio and video to fuel conspiracy theories and hoaxes. The massive distribution channels afforded by social media platforms fuel and amplify disinformation and misinformation. It is easy to blame technology for the disintegration of trust, not only in the press, but also for other democratic institutions. But what if technology could instead help foster trust in the press? What if technology could create greater transparency, 
so we could understand the provenance of stories and articles, or be able to distinguish who or what funds certain outlets. Could technology help repair our trust in one of the most fundamental institutions required for a well-functioning democracy? Our guest today is Sally Lehrman. Sally is an internationally recognized expert and speaker on building a more trustworthy press and was named one of MediaShift's top 20 digital innovators in 2018 for her work founding and leading the Trust Project. Previously an award-winning reporter on medicine and science, her honors include a Peabody Award, DuPont Columbia, and the John S. Knight Fellowship, with bylines in Scientific American, Nature, Health, and the public radio documentary series, The DNA Files, distributed by NPR, among others. Her co-edited volume, Reporting Inequality, Tools and Methods for Covering Race and Ethnicity, was published in 2019. An earlier book, News in New America, argues for an inclusive U.S. news media. She is affiliated with the UC Santa Cruz Center for Science and Justice as Science and Justice Professor. Welcome, Sally. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here today. Well, let's first start with some definitions, since some words are used interchangeably, uh, such as media and social media and press and journalism. How would you distinguish those terms? Well, that's such an important question. It seems kind of basic, but it's very important because we say media and, and we mean everything. So we're, when we talk about journalism, we're talking about the news that you see in newspapers, on the radio, on television, and it's draw, pulled from a practice or created through a practice with a lot of rigor behind it, where we check our sources, we interview multiple people, we um, name name the um, where the information comes from and the facts themselves. Um, social media, of course, is more of a distribution system. It does distribute news, so sometimes people think of that as media. And um, of course, it's a more of a means to communicate with one another about ideas, maybe, or about um, emotions or about our families. So very different spaces. Um, and then we also can talk about media at a big level, which would include movies and films and all kinds of things. So what do you mean by trust when it comes to the media or press and, and how do we measure it? Yeah, and I, I thought it was your introduction was so great because it really talks about why trust is so important. And it was even seen like back when Madison and Jefferson were thinking about democracy and how the Hutchins Commission was coming back to those questions. And so what does it mean? It means that, um, as Maria Ressa put it so well, is that we have confidence that these organizations that call themselves news organizations that say they're producing journalism really are producing information in the public interest. So they follow certain practices. They have certain ethics behind their work. They have checks and balances built into that work so that when I read a piece of information from them, I can trust it to be based in fact and to be, again, not about a particular, trying to promote a particular perspective, but bringing multiple pers perspectives so that I can make an informed decision. And so that's what trust is, it's about the process. It's not like, oh, okay, I trust um, that everything they say is right or wrong. It's that I understand that they put, that they are fulfilling this um, purpose and therefore I can trust their work and, and build from it. So I think you touched on this a little bit, but maybe you could spell out how has the trust in media changed and why in recent years? 
Yeah, well, I suppose we all have our theories about it. Um, when I started the trust project, and as you said, I've been a longtime journalist, mostly in science and medicine, thinking about um, how important it was for the public to have a voice in the development of science and medicine and therefore needed to understand it. And um, and then I saw with the digital, the as, as news moved into the digital environment, that um, we did a lot of kind of dumb things in journalism. Like we wrote... Um, clickbait headlines. And we, um, there was one organization in Florida that started running um, images of people who had been arrested, not charged, just arrested as a way to get people's attention or celebrities. That's not journalism. So we were undermining our own efforts. And um, so this was in, I mean, in terms of dates, like when I, when I started noticing um, or looking at the data and noticing when trust started to decline, it was around 1997. And it, and if you think about it, that's like when things started to shift in terms of distribution. And then it just continued down. And we have our ups and downs. And it did improve um, in, let's see, around the beginning of COVID. And some of that is because news organizations have made a big effort to, to, to try to earn trust back. Some of it's because people really realized, well, I need to, I need to pay attention. And it was a life or death matter of whether I could trust my news. And so we saw it increase a little bit. And I think you named some pretty horrific statistics. But I will say, if you look at the data about the U.S. across a number of organizations, it, it actually has increased slightly in the last year. It's, but it will, it's going to go up and down. And so we are at this moment, I feel that we really need to pay attention for so many reasons. One is there's an opportunity to get better, to earn that back. You mentioned clickbait, and it makes me wonder whether um, the fundamentals behind clickbait is really about getting as much attention because you're relying on people clicking on it and then therefore showing ads and earning you know, advertising revenue. So how much of the decline in the press or decline in the trust in, in, in the press and media is really tied to this idea of surveillance capitalism and how modern media earns its um, its revenues, which is really not much based on subscriptionship, but subscribership, but rather advertising revenue. Right. And, and in fact, like it goes further than that. It goes a little deeper because you're as we shifted into this digital realm, then over time, technology companies not only overtook distribution, but overtook the advertising stream. So it became so important to be, to perform well in those spaces. Um, and so I feel that this is something really important that news organizations need to think about is how do we become more independent from these, these distribution channels that really prioritize the wrong thing for mm -hmm. journalism anyway, prioritize emotional content, prioritize, you know, a content that may grab attention, but that, and I even say content, like there's an example, why am I even talking about content, not journalism? This is how we've kind of become captive to the technology organizations. And, and I know that like there's great technology out there. They've improved our lives in many ways, but we really have to think about, um, how we can 
navigate these spaces more effectively when we consider our public service mission that we are about, yes, we need revenue to support the work, but the work of journalism is about informing the public about the events and issues of the day, about one another, so that we can have a more um, successful and happy society. Yeah, I think you, in mentioning content, I think that the part of the problem with the lines getting blurred, I'm thinking of recent events um, just this past weekend in in Israel and the number of people who were, for instance, at the music fest who um, were filming a music fest and then suddenly they were filming something much worse. Yeah. Um, and, and, that, and that started circulating. So that has sort of blended between being circulating on social media platforms, which are delivering content as you describe it, and news resources have tapped into that to be part of their reporting. So um, I, you know, it, it seems to me that, that that doesn't help in terms of blurring the lines as well or building up, up trust. Yeah, so it's kind of a good and bad thing because when you've got the technology to actually record an event as it's happening and you may not have professional journalists on the scene, then you can really gather important information. And the situation, the killing of George Floyd, of course, is the most really um, strong example of that where who knows what would have happened if, if that person hadn't been there with their cell phone recording it at all. Um, but as you say, there is this blurring between journalism and um, we used to call it user-generated content, so materials that are gathered on the street by people who aren't professionals. And it, and the best way that these two interact is when journalists pull in that information, give context, to, well, first check it to make sure that it's really true and accurate and that they were there and they're not representing something that was happened 10 years ago and kind of could have happened in this space. So they check it. And then they put context around it and add other perspectives because it is one perspective and um, and then produce a piece of journalism around it. The, the risks are when it starts circulating um, and sometimes, again, can be fodder for disinformation. So then it's the piece of truth gets built, all these um, tropes and... Um, other kinds of disinformation get um, piled upon it. And so it can do great harm on its own that way. Even though it might be an eyewitness report is an eyewitness with that has been skewed according to whoever the, is using it. Let's talk about the Hutchins Commission because in reading that I was struck by how you could just transplant the findings of 1947 and bring it forward to 2023 swap out a couple of words like, you know, maybe press for media and boom, it, it really describes the landscape today. Um, please talk about how the Hutchins Commission and the work that they did from back then informed what you guys took on in the trust project. Oh well, yeah. And I'm so glad that you looked into that so deeply because it was really inspiring to me. And, um, as I was trying to think about, well, what really should we be doing in this space? As I thought, well, I'm going to start this organization rather, I don't know, ambitiously. <laughs> I, so I looked back to well, what else has been done. And of course, I was very familiar with the Kerner Commission that had looked at coverage of race. But the Hutchins Commission did not get as much attention in journalism. And part of it was, I think, 
you mentioned that, and some of it was because the people on the commission were not journalists, so journalists kind of waved it away. But um, when I went back to to look at it, I realized two things. One, in 1947, it actually was a very similar time to today in terms of the way news was perceived. So there was a sense that journalism was being degraded. It was um, pretty much just existed to sell more of itself and it was a business proposition, was not socially, socially responsible, kind of had lost sight of where they were going and were just promoting um, a certain point of view or, or financial interests. And there was a lot of fear on the part of news organizations of regulation. And so that's why Henry Luce reached out to his friend and said, um, you know, would you, Robert Hutchins, University of Chicago, and said, would you put together this commission? And then they did, they spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I thought it was so resonant that they were able to describe what is the social responsibility of the press. And it has to do with keeping people informed of the issues of the day it, in context they mention it also has to do with um, helping constituent groups of society understand one another so all of these things became part of the way um, we at the trust project tried to ground ourselves in what is a socially responsible press and as we and press writ large so we still use that term press because it is a way to describe journalism in that in doing the act of journalism so we don't have printing presses as much but we still are putting something out to the public and i think press is kind of a good way to think about it um and so any news organization that applies to the trust project and wants to participate and put the um trust indicators on their pages which are indicators of transparency showing who and what is behind the news organization that we measure them against those principles in effect. Like, are they really um, carrying out these kinds of principles? And then if the answer is yes, then we will work with them um, to yes, number one, put these trust indicators on their pages, but also live up to the principles behind them. So now that you've talked a little bit about the trust project and the trust indicators, could you could you give us an introduction to the trust project and talk about how <laughs> the... Uh, how it narrowed down the Hutchins Commission's principles to the the eight trust indicators. Okay, yeah, yeah. And it, it what we did was, or what I did was, um, I went out and I looked at research, and I was trying to understand like what does trust mean online, and what's known about trust online, and what's known about trust in news, or news online. And I found that there wasn't at that time research. Uh, um, on that combination. There was new research on trust in news, trust in online information, but not both. So I tried to patch them together to come up with sort of a sense of what it would, what would trust look like online. And then I, and also, as I mentioned, found the Hutchins Commission um, principles. But we also, you know, as a journalist, having talked about this with other journalists for a long time and realizing we really hadn't got anywhere, the, the, the line was still going down, not up, um, about trust. I thought um, I also encountered user-centered design because I had been, I was an alum of the Knight Fellowship at Stanford. And this is a big thing at the D school there. And I realized this is what we should be doing. We really need to be talking to the public about what do they value in the news and how do they decide whether to trust it. So we went out and did user-centered design research and talked to people in depth 
kind of an ethnographic light, I called it, about those things. And then we had these, um, we took those interviews about user needs and wants, and with help of like designers specifically, who kind of had a bit good idea of how these things should work. We had workshops with senior news executives from the US, from Latin America, Canada, Europe, and brought them together with the information said, okay, this is what the public is saying about us. And here are these Hutchins Commission principles, which is, which is kind of a good foundation for what we should be doing. How do we marry their needs and wants with these bedrock journalistic values that we all really pretty much live by and have um, immersed ourselves in, but don't articulate that well. And so over a series of meetings and workshops, we came up with 37 of them. And I realized like that's a little too many. And we so we narrowed it down in the final workshop to eight. And then each of those eight went out to working groups and they defined them further. And then I could tell you about each one of them or the group if you'd like, but that was that was pretty much the process. And we kind of, we always remind people as they come into the trust project about those Hutchins Commission um, principles of a socially responsible press. Give us a few examples of some of those trust indicators. Like for example, if I were to read something online, um, let's say from, the Washington Post, I think they're in the process of, of implementing this. What would I actually see? Yeah, and the Post, actually, the Post is one of our original partners, and they're kind of like some of the original partners. They, they're they coming back to redoing some of the trust indicators and putting them back in place as they redesign their pages. Um, but if you were to go to the Post, for instance, you, you would see... Um, what we call best practices. And that gets to that question about that users asked over and over, which was, what is your agenda? They said, people understand that journalists aim to be impartial, but everybody has an agenda. So tell us yours. And I always tell journalists, well, if, they, if you don't tell them, they're going to assume that it's just to sell papers. I mean, how many times do we hear that when we go out to do a story? And um, so our agenda is to serve the public interest. Well, how do we ensure that we do that? We put these guardrails around our efforts, and that includes our ethics policies, commitments to avoiding conflict of interest, and keeping a separation from the business interests of the organization from the journalistic effort. Um, there's a whole set of things. And so we have this working group on that particular one developed a whole set of disclosures fall under this best practices trust indicator. So you will see when you go to the Washington Post, information about all those things I mentioned, plus when do they run corrections? How do they establish that something is um, truthful? You will see the same thing on El Comercio in Peru, on iNews Source, an investigative news organization in Southern California, on um, uh, the Globe and Mail in Canada. So these are all of our partners present these um, facts about themselves, their mission, their coverage priorities. And they're not the same thing, of course, by each organization, but they are all disclosures that tell you, well, the Toronto Star, another partner, is liberal in perspective. Or another news organization tries to really, I news source, we try to remain, I don't know if this is exactly what they say, but they are trying to in, um, enhance the community of San Diego through their investigative reporting and hold, hold the um, government accountable to its citizens and other residents. 
So that's best practices. Um, another one would be journalist expertise. So who is this journalist? Why should I trust them? That was one of the, the things that people raised. So it all ties back to the questions people asked. And um, they wanted, if you think about trust, it's really about a relationship, about do I know where they're coming from, this individual? Do they share my values? Can I expect a certain sort of um, quality from them or behavior from them? So that some of that goes to the organization, some of it goes to the individual. So um, Washington Post one of the, was one of the first that I thought did a really great treatment with um, journalist expertise. We asked for four pieces of information about the journalist on um, the article page, so you don't have to click further. And then you can click beyond the article page, if you want, to a full profile. And that full profile provides things that um, you know, might not normally come to mind, like languages spoken, because people were really said that mattered to them when it came to trust. And one of the things I'll add there is now you see both those things happen. You see that published very often, journalists' information and the best practices, ethics codes. That did not, none of those things were happening before the trust project. When I first suggested that you had, you should publish your ethics code, news organizations were really worried. They're like, we don't want to do that. That's going to open us up to legal uh, liability. Now, fortunately, I was able to convince a few. They convinced others, and now we see it all over the place. Another big one is separating news from opinion. So very, this we heard from the public. We don't think even journalists understand the difference between news and opinion because it's blended so much. So we really look at that. And if we don't see it in a news site that applies, we talk to them about, well, you need to separate this more and you need to put a label that says this is opinion or analysis or a type of paid content, or maybe it's investigative. And then those labels are shared through across all of our partners globally, meaning like you'll see the same term in Spanish as in English as in another language, Italian, let's say, but you know, localized and with the same definition as well. So when you see an opinion page in um, Italy, it's gonna have the same um, definition internally and externally as it will on um, a site in Canada or Latin America or any of our others. So those are just a few providing references, um, information about where we got our um, the story, if it's an investigative or a controversial piece, for example. So you did some consumer research to understand consumer viewpoints on news. And what have you learned about what they look for in news and, and how do they determine whether they can trust it or not? Yeah, well, we continue to do that work. So we've done it. We did that first set of research and then we had some external um, like actual experiments that were done um, on our behalf or about the trust indicators to see if they really worked. And then we did another round of research in 2020 and we just finished around with Native um, Americans around their perceptions of the news. And each one of those trust indicators ties back to some of the ways that people evaluate whether to trust a news story. So big one, I mentioned agenda, conflict of interest, big one. Some, some people talked more about, well, how was the story built? Where did it come from? And to, why did you even do, do that story? Um, and so those ended up being pulled together and in, into these trust indicators. Another big one I'll mention is diverse voices, um, which is 
one a great a person in Europe talked about this really well. Um, like we don't want to hear so much from the voices of um, people at high levels of business and government. We want to hear more from people like ourselves, and we heard that from people in Detroit too. Like we want to hear from people like us, and we want to hear from people not like us. And they understood going back to the the Hutchins Commission that important role of of news organizations. Um, helping constituents, groups of society understand one another. So when it comes to trust, um, these eight trust indicators try to kind of come together to lift that up. And I will also say people, what we learned too, is there isn't one single way to get, to earn trust. Um, so some, one person might care more about, well, do they really care about diverse voices? Are they bringing in a variety of perspectives, including ideological perspectives um, or immigrant perspectives? Another may care more, well, do they have a really solid ethics policy that they um, follow? We did find, or we didn't find, the UT Austin did the research on the trust indicators and found that they did enhance perceptions of the news organization and of the journalists. And what did they say? Like, kind of getting to your question, the core of your question, they said, we felt that they told the whole story or they knew what they were, um, the journalists had done their homework. So that's what people are looking about and looking for in their own words. They're looking for the, a full representation of what's happening in the world or in their own community that is impartial recognizing that we all come to everything with our own personal history, but the journalists are making that effort to set it aside. And if they have it, then they're going to call it opinion. Um, and so really, to me, it always comes back to holding the public interest at heart and checking your facts and admitting when you're wrong. So being accountable, those are the things, some of the things that they looked for. I'm wondering the extent to which um, people properly distinguish when they are consuming news from a from a journalist, you know, a proper news source versus when are they consuming media that's been produced for less newsworthy purposes, shall we say? I mean, where do people go to get their news, and are they really consuming it from news proper news sources? Is kind yeah. of yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important question. We found all of the above. Um, so, and there's, there's good data on that too, that a lot of people are looking at news and social media or even search through the search engines and they or an app. And they think that it's, I mean, hopefully it's a news distribution app, but maybe not. And they're thinking, they call that news and maybe it is news um, or maybe not. Um, so, and now we're seeing more so-called news being delivered via email or shared by different family members on WhatsApp. So it's um, this is why we also really look to the public empowerment side of things. Like we're not trying to say trust this and don't trust that. We want people to feel the confidence to look at something that looks like news anywhere and be able to know, well, here's what I look for in order to ascertain. Is it coming from those bedrock journalism values or is it really a piece of opinion or propaganda worse? or misinformation, I don't know, equally bad, um, or disinformation. Um, we found in our most recent research that there's a lot of anxiety around this. So first of all, people, everybody across, we had four, four user types, 
ranging from the most avid engaged avid news user checking cross-checking the news to what originally we called the angry disengaged and because they were had totally checked out from news they felt completely unrepresented um, and they weren't even going to pay attention so everyone got more engaged with news um, and the ad, the angry disengaged unfortunately became engaged with disinformation but there's this middle group that and everybody really expect, expressed a lot of anxiety about, well, can I trust what I'm seeing? And how do I know even the avid or the they thought who really thought they had a pretty good idea what is trustworthy news? They were saying, well, I could get caught up in disinformation because it's so there's so much of it. And um, and then others would say things like, well, I'm afraid that I will be tricked by it. And I'm afraid I will be fooled into accidentally sharing it and then being like embarrassed and humiliating and being part of the problem. So I think there's a lot of more awareness of the problem, which is good and bad. It's good because one, we can help these, we can help people, especially what I call the anxious middle, the folks in the middle who aren't so sure they haven't gone over to all the disinformation. They haven't, they're not the curators, but they're trying to find their way through all of this. We can help them with the trust indicators, like these are eight things you can look for. Um, so that's the good part. The bad part is that anxious middle is also quite vulnerable to disinformation because um, they know they're being flooded with it. They are, um, it kind of provides in a way a little bit of an easy out. Like, trust me, I'm gonna tell you the truth. Um, so just go my way. <laughs> as opposed to journalism, which is a little challenging. We have to admit it. Journalism is challenging because it asks you, it presents in its best form, multiple perspectives. And so you're being asked to kind of wade your way through all this or think about it and make your own decision. That's journalism at its best. So it's a little bit more maybe cognitively challenging than disinformation, but we know people want it. So if we can just, my idea is, can we, I'm sorry, I'm straying from the question a little, but if we can help people focus on, um, build their confidence that they'll they'll be able to make their way through what they're finding as a lot of landmines. So yeah, I think people often do go to dangerous places or maybe don't know where they are. And this is this is the opportunity of the moment and also the risk of the moment. Let's talk about um, echo chambers because when we're talking about people who want to, you know, they say they want to have multiple viewpoints. The reality is a lot of people get stuck mm -hmm. in these echo chambers that reflect back confirmation mm -hmm. bias, they reflect back what they yeah. already know or endorse their point of view. And we see that in the rise of media um, on the left and the right, right? You know, Fox News, yeah. uh, MSNBC, where the slant on the co coverage is very much either very right or very left. How do you square these echo chambers with where people are naturally drawn to and they tend to stick there uh, to folks who say, no, I really want to have diverse uh, points of view because, you know, if that were the case, maybe there would be other outlets that wouldn't, you couldn't really tell if it's right or left and that, and they were just as successful perhaps. Yeah, well, that's that is such a challenge, and um, 
a lot of news organizations are trying to double down on being more impartial. I think part of why we see these echo chambers is not just the human condition, even though we're often told that, um, you know, the tribal instinct. It's um, that's kind of a really, um, I don't know, popular pop culture psychology. I mean, there is some truth to it, but not at the level that we tend to think about it. Some of it's journalism's own fault, kind of as I was saying before, where we were trying to capture audiences and so possibly went too far in certain directions. Uh, so we have to correct that. And some news organizations are doing a very good job of that. They can also upset their audiences who are used to a certain maybe angle. Um, so what we hear we do hear from people and we see in their news diet that there there are a lot of again that anxious middle who are really looking for um honest accurate information that they can use to make decisions in their own lives in their own communities they know that if they're stuck in an echo chamber they are not going to get the information that they really need to make their own decisions even if it comes to like what's the right thing to do in our community big issue right here in my community should we make um what are those things called the traffic circle or should it be three stoplights in a row and so i really need to know correct information about that in order to know how to vote not i don't want to hear the propaganda by the anti you know traffic circle people so this is this is what we as journalists and anybody that else that really cares about democracy writ large or small we need to latch on to that and continue to share that message and to help remind people that if you're in an echo chamber, it might make you feel good for a time, but it's not going to help us, our democracy. It's not going to help you be a better voter, be a better neighbor, be a, even live more happily necessarily over time. And it is a challenge. It's partly a challenge going back to technology that is reinforced or not or recreated over and over by technology because technology does push us into these echo chambers because it's always as you know far better than me is like rewarding whatever we say we like and we see more and more and more of that and we don't even know we're going down that little rabbit hole so it's about awareness and reminding people um that even though it might sometimes feel safer. It's really is better to be fully informed. I think people know that in their hearts and in their minds, and we can tap into that. So I feel like we've only just, you know, begun to scratch the tip of the iceberg, but it's it's already getting time to wrap up. And maybe maybe we should go out with what would you suggest the average news consumer should do? Well, kind of thank you for that. Um, I would say one it's really tempting to go down that rabbit hole as we said just to and i know i talk to my neighbors and like get, they get really upset when they read things that um might be contrary to their point of view but it's really good to know about that that's one um two and don't do the opposite of like just check out like i can't trust anything which is very tempting right now particularly with ai coming in and kind of confusing everybody about what's real and what's not so don't check out and just stop paying attention to news, um, but instead take on your role as a member of the public who is part of the news equation. 
and we do talk about news consumers, but really we are not passive consumers of news. We are part of the production of news in the sense that that journalists are aiming to to um, answer the questions that society has about itself, the issues we're, we're trying to address, the problems we're trying to solve. And so everyone has a role to play. And that means holding your news site accountable. It means even holding yourself accountable when it comes to like, what news am I going to actually consult? And it also means talking with our neighbors and our friends and our family about the news and engaging with it and really using it for its purposes. And rather than thinking of news as it's kind of become a little bit of a weapon. And that's the, that's the effect of disinformation. And we've got to, We've got to fight that and reclaim, reclaim news for all of us. Very good words. Yep, that's been great. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. This is a wonderful conversation. I love your questions and, of course, love to talk about this. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Sally. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Techsequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.